Hello, Renaissance. I'm Lee Strobel. Today, we're in week two of our series, Unearthed, as we look at the evidence for the Christian faith. Today, Rich and Clay are going to look at the question, is the Bible reliable? And that, of course, sparks a whole bunch of other questions like, isn't the Bible full of hundreds of errors? Hasn't the Bible been corrupted over the last 2,000 years? What about other Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas? Maybe you've asked questions like these yourself. I know when I was a spiritual skeptic, these were the kind of questions I was raising. In fact, on May 17th and 18th, I'm going to be here, and I'm going to talk about my journey from skepticism to faith. I'll see you then. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Well, good morning, and uh, welcome once again. And uh, thank you, Lee. Yeah, he did a great yeah, job. Did he do a good job? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of cool. Um, have you ever met him? I never have. I haven't either. Uh, looking yeah, for, looking forward fun. to it, though. Be good. Um, well, actually, we have some folks here from Willow Creek this morning, uh, with, with the church he used to be a pastor, and they were telling me how they used to hear him speak quite nice. often. And, nice. Uh, Kind of cool. Well, anyway, uh, very quickly, um, next week uh, we're going to be talking about will the real Jesus please stand up? And that's going to be fun. We're already working on that. We've got some fun stuff with that. And then, of course, the following weekend is when um, we see Lee Strobel. He's going to be talking about is there proof for the resurrection? So um, it's going to be a great weekend as well. But today, it is the, is the Bible reliable? That's, that's our theme. We're going to try to do this in 30 minutes, which is a bit of a challenge since I spent about two and a half years studying this stuff back in the day. And um, so anyway, let's jump in. Clay, is the Bible reliable? Yep. Okay. We're done. 30 seconds over. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and, uh, I think it's a great question because it's often brought up. It's an issue that's often brought up. And interestingly, excuse me, just about every year at Easter time, there's yet another book that comes out questioning something to do with, you know, the basic beliefs of Christianity. And there were some this, this year as well that came out, and we'll actually be talking about one of those next week. But um, one of the scholars who's kind of representative of the skeptical camp that would say, no, the Bible is not reliable, is a guy named Bart Ehrman, who teaches down at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I think he teaches in the religion department there. And uh, he puts it this way. He says, all we would need to do would be to read the Bible and accept what it says is what really happened. That, of course, is the approach to the Bible that fundamentalists take. And that's one reason why you will not find fundamentalists at the forefront of critical scholarship. So there you go. That's one scholar who does not think very highly of people who think that the Bible is reliable. And you don't have to really look too far to find some people who will make statements that he'll be able to say, see, I told you so, told you so. And there's one, for example, that I found on the internet the other day. And this guy, um, he doesn't teach anywhere, I don't think, and you'll see why in just a minute. He says, which leads to another issue that the government is into that I dislike, and that's the conflict over another language for Americans. I believe that if English was good enough for Jesus Christ, it's good enough for me. There you go. And Somebody I think really that ends. That. They did. Yeah. Now, they wouldn't put their name to it, oh, but, yeah, you know, no they, they obviously. And I think that ends the debate over, you know, what language we should be speaking here and over whether the Bible is yeah. reliable or, or, or not and whether Christians have brains or not as well. But we dealt with that one uh, last week. But on the other side of the equation, there are many scholars who would say that the Bible is reliable, many well-respected scholars. And what I really like about Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, is that he, as a reporter, is not just saying, this is what I think. He actually went out and interviewed 
quite a number of well-respected scholars in all sorts of different fields that relate to uh, issues that are related to Jesus, who he is, what he's done, the Bible, history, archaeology, etc. And he interviewed these different scholars and got their take on a number of different questions. And so you and I, you know, we've read through uh, parts or all of that book and yeah. a number of different books by other scholars. One, for example, Bruce Metzger, who Lee Strobel interviews, he was actually Bart Ehrman's mentor at Princeton Theological Seminary. So it's interesting to see the student kind of departing yeah. from the teacher and his thinking there. So Bruce Metzger is one, a guy named Dan Wallace is another, Craig Blomberg is a third. There are really dozens of well-respected scholars out there who would say, yes, the Bible's reliable. So if we kind of want to summarize the skeptical view, um, here's, this is from a group called the Jesus Seminar that was popular about 15, 20 years or so ago. They say, much of the lore recorded in the Gospels and elsewhere in the Bible is folklore, which means that it's wrapped in memories that have been edited, deleted, augmented, and combined many times over. So basically, we can't know what was going on because of that. But we do have, I think, some pretty good arguments for the... uh, the idea that the Bible is reliable. Can you, can you give us a couple summaries of a one or two? Yeah. Yeah. And I want to focus, let's focus today mostly on the gospels because first of all, they focus on who Jesus is and that's really key to our faith. But secondly, the gospels are the part of the Bible that is more often attacked in right. terms of reliability than anything else. And when you look at the four gospels that we have, uh, that we would call canonical, meaning that they're in the canon of scripture, the, you know, the, the, the central, books that we believe, Um, this Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of those are based on eyewitness testimony. Matthew and John were eyewitnesses themselves. They were disciples of Jesus. They spent, you know, pretty much every day with him. They were there when he said the things that they recorded. They were there when he did the things that they recorded. So they're eyewitnesses to it. Mark got most of his information from Peter, who was another eyewitness. And then Luke, interestingly, was more of a historian, and he researched, he read other things that had been written, he interviewed eyewitnesses. So essentially, in our four Gospels, we have this eyewitness testimony, and you don't do much better than eyewitness testimony when you don't have you know, video or audio recordings of what was going on there. So they're in a pretty good position to be able to record accurately what happened. And then, and then there's, um, and we've heard a lot more about this recently, but there's poor old Thomas. He didn't make the cut. His, his, his gospel didn't get in the Bible. Poor guy, how come? Because he didn't write it. <laughs> that's, that's really the issue. Okay, that's a, there's a huge issue there. The Gospel of Thomas is a, actually a collection of 114 sayings that are attributed to Jesus. And the first line begins with this phrase. It says, these are the secret sayings spoken by Jesus. Well, if they're the secret sayings spoken by Jesus, how can you verify or how can you prove that that didn't happen? You can't show that it did or that didn't happen because they're secret. Nobody knows about them. Contrast that with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There were eyewitnesses involved. They were published. These things are out there. And so the people could either corroborate or challenge the authenticity of these documents. Interestingly, nobody believes that Thomas, the disciple, actually wrote the Gospel of Thomas. It was no. probably written in the second century. Nobody believes that Thomas wrote it. It's, it's viewed as what's called a pseudepigraphal gospel, meaning it's a false writing uh, that was attributed to Thomas in order to give it authority, 
that it really didn't have. And so the reason it wasn't included is because nobody believed that Thomas actually wrote it, and why would you want something that is clearly yeah. you know, attributed falsely in that way? Why would you want it in there? Well, plus, you got the four, what we call the... Um, Canonical. Canonical, or the four, four Gospels in the Bible, basically, let's say it that way. Um, and uh, they, were, they were anonymous, written anonymously, correct? Right, right, which on the surface you say, well, so then we really don't know who wrote those either. But actually, early church history makes it very clear. Everybody agrees Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote the Gospels that were attributed to them. There's a little bit of a debate over John, although I think that's uh, blown way out of proportion in general. Pretty much most of the early historians as well believed that John wrote John. And the key thing about them being anonymous is they're not trying to pretend to be somebody that they weren't. And since these were being widely circulated early on, people could check, see if they're accurate or not. So interestingly, in contrast to Thomas, the fact that these guys are anonymous is actually showing that they're more reliable because they're not trying to pretend to be somebody that they're not. Well, and then one of the things we hear often, um, you and I have both heard it many times, is, well, they wrote these, uh, the, the, the writers of the, of the four Gospels in the Bible wrote these, in some cases, decades after the, the events happened. How do we know they didn't forget or, or get something wrong or be like a game of telephone where right. you repeat something and repeat something and it gets all distorted? So yeah. how do we answer that? I think there's a couple of key things to, to remember there. First of all, the time span between when the events happened and when they were, were recorded is not nearly as long as... We might think that, that they were. With Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's not much question. They were almost certainly written within about 30 years of the time that they occurred. John, there's a little bit of a debate again over that, but most scholars would say it was probably written within about 60 years. And people who have studied uh, societies that pass things down orally from mm-hmm. person to person, stories and events that happened and and accounts and things like that. They say it actually takes a lot longer than 30 or 60 years for significant errors to to creep in there. Uh, The other thing that these scholars who study these things have discovered is that it's a lot different than our 21st century situation. The game, you know, we play this fun kids game, a telephone. In our society, because we're not used to passing on stories orally and making sure that they're remembered correctly, we can get them messed up a whole lot more easily. In societies around the world today that are still more oral than they are written, they don't have that issue nearly so much. And back in the first century, it was a society that was much better at preserving oral tradition. So That's all they had. That's all they had, and they were good at doing it. So I really don't think it's a significant concern. But if we flip it around, let me ask you a question here. Uh, You were telling me as we were talking about this, uh, you were telling me about one of the worst days in your life when you learned something that kind of threw you for a loop there. It literally literally was one of the worst days of my life. It was my second... Now, keep in mind, I'm going at this point in my mid-20s, feel like the the Lord has called me to be a pastor, and I'm going back to school college, and uh, to get my degree in uh, uh, theology and Bible. Second year, I'm in this course called Textual Criticism. I don't even know what textual criticism is, you know, at that point in my, my life. And the, and the professor started, keep in mind, a very theologically conservative institution. And what's, what's, what does that mean? What's the point of that in terms of your story? Sorry they, to interrupt you. But they believe the Bible, and they believe in teaching the Bible. They believe the Bible is the Word of God. And it's reliable, and we and can trust it, et cetera. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So my, my professor stands up the first day in this class, and he says, I'm sure you gentlemen, I'm sorry, there's only men there, sorry. But anyway, I'm, he says, I'm sure you gentlemen realize that we have none of the original 
uh, autographs in the original um, um, documents of the Bible. I was like, are you kidding me? I've left my career, I've moved my family, I'm going back to school, give my life to, stu- to, to be a pastor, and we don't have any of the original manuscripts? I mean, it just, it rocked my faith. And we don't even know what's in the Bible because we don't have any of the originals, yeah. and who knows oh, yeah. I'm how like, messed up they're going to be. I, yeah, I'm, 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 up at that point, I'm thinking, well, they've got to be somewhere, Jerusalem or Rome or somewhere, right, locked away. Right. They're locked yeah. away somewhere, yeah. And he says it's not there, and it kind of throws you for a... It, you it, know, I mean, it really, messed you up. I mean, it, it, it took me a while to get over that. Interestingly, that's one of the key arguments that's used uh, against the reliability of the Bible, but you're getting it at this conservative Bible-believing institution yeah, there. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Bart Ehrman puts it this way. He says, what good is it to say that we have the autographs, in other words, the originals, uh, that, to say that they were inspired? We don't have the originals. We have only error-ridden copies, and the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals and different from them, evidently, in thousands of ways. So he puts it that way, yeah. and he says, so what's the point if we don't have Well, it? he and a number of other people also say there are over 400,000 errors in, in, the, in what we do have. Yeah, and, and let me tweak that just yeah. a little bit. The way that they would say it is that there are 400,000 variations. variations yeah. In other words, when you look across the, and it's actually 5,700 Greek manuscripts and then literally 20,000 other manuscripts in languages like Latin and Coptic, etc. Across all of those, there are about 400,000 variations, meaning uh, one word is changed here or there or something like that. And they look and they say, 400,000, we've got no clue what's going on here. But what you have to understand is the vast majority of the, these variations, and they're legitimate variations, the vast majority of them are no more significant than spelling the word color the American way without a U or the British way with a U. It makes absolutely no difference in translation, absolutely no difference in meaning. A bunch of them as well are what, if they were typing it, we would call typos, slips of the pen. So for example, the Greek word for and and the Greek word for Lord differ just slightly. If you lop off the last three letters of the Greek word for Lord, you get the Greek word for and. So a, so a scribe is a little bit tired. He leaves off the last three letters, and you get something that'll say, the and said to Mary. And you're, what, what, the and said? No, the Lord said. It's obviously what was intended there. So when you cut through all of those essentially trivial errors and other ones that don't make any, any significant difference, you get less than 1% of these variations you would even notice in any translation. And then when you look at that 1%, there are none, according to a lot of different scholars who have studied this, not one of those affects any significant doctrine of Christianity. So 400,000 sounds really big, but it gets really small Mm -hmm. and insignificant really, really quickly. Well, I know what's coming here, and uh, give us an example of, uh, of a belief that would be changed uh, if we accepted this, some of this snake handling, okay? There you go. There you go, snake handling. And what's interesting about that, there's a passage at the end of the Gospel of Mark, and there's some question as to whether it should be in the original or not, right. whether it actually was there, and it talks about snake handling. And there was actually a pastor somewhere down south or something. Kingsport, down. Tennessee. There you go. Yep. You, do you know him? Did you know him? Oh, yeah. He's, he's a good friend of mine. He's yeah, with yeah. Jesus right no, now, I believe. No, I but, was, uh, actually, I was living in Chattanooga when that happened. 
And, uh, you know, and yeah. he is... He ended up dying. He is no longer yeah. walking on the yeah. earth. And, uh, but seriously, you know, it sounds like a joke. In fact, that is one of the key passages that's brought up as saying, see, we don't really know what the Bible says. Now, let's leave aside for a second. Actually, we're not leaving aside because I'm making the point. There is no scholar, no scholar who has studied this Mm-mm. who is going to, with, with a couple exceptions, who are going to say that that was part of the original. They're saying, no, we know it's not part of the original. So it's almost kind of like a red herring that you're, you know, that you're going after there. What difference does it make whether snake handling is original or not? Does it affect whether we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that he was God, that he was crucified? It doesn't affect any cardinal, any significant doctrine of Christianity. And that's probably, snake handling is probably one of the most significant ones that there is because it's brought up all, all the time. And then when you look at the process by which these scholars reconstruct yeah. the original yeah. text, it's pretty amazing how well they can do it. And I've seen them do it with, they'll take a, an existing text that we know the original for, and they kind of distort it in the way that the copies of the Bible have been distorted. And then they get someone else to reconstruct it. They get it word for word perfect almost every time. So they're really good at reconstructing the original. So I think we've got uh, pretty high confidence that we know what was originally in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Well, also, we have so many more copies of the New Testament than, uh, than, than any other ancient literature yeah. has of their stuff. Yeah, yeah. And you were, you were looking at some of the numbers the other day. Tell me what tell Calm us me what down, you found. okay? Calm yeah. me down. Because um, you get pretty... You know, I get excited about it. We were, weren't you we're, like, a, uh, like a Fuller Brush I, salesman or something I, like I that for sell, a while? I sold Fuller Brush okay. two years. He's not selling you Fuller Brushes. He's actually accurate in what he's saying He, he told me earlier, we were talking about this this week, and he says, you don't have to sell me. I said, I can't help it. Uh, anyway, um, listen to this stuff. This is crazy stuff. Plato. We all know who Plato is, right? We have seven, seven copies of his stuff. 1,200-year gap from the original to the next copy. 1,200 years, okay? And then we got Aristotle. Everybody knows who Aristotle. 49, oh, yeah, oh 49 copies. A 1,400-year gap. Are you kidding me? And then, and then, of course, we got Homer, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey, a great reading if you want to sleep. Um, there's six, <laughs> six, sorry. He's got, we got a lot of copies of his stuff, 643 copies. And get this. There's a 500-year gap from the original time you wrote it until the next copy that we have. Now, let's talk about the New Testament. 5,700 copies. The oldest has less, less than a 100-year gap. Are you kidding me? I mean, come on. There you go. So, I mean, so, so the New Testament gets, gets beaten up all the time. Well, we don't have the... I don't hear anybody saying, well, we don't have the original for Homer. We don't have the original for, uh, for, uh, for uh, Plato or Aristotle. And the, yeah, and the New Testament is clearly... Clearly, we've got much better copies, much closer to the original time there. And, you know, we were talking about this uh, earlier this morning even. You know, why is it that people uh, have no problem with Homer or Plato or Aristotle saying, yeah, we've got the original, you know, good enough. We're, We're close enough there. But with the New Testament, they don't. And I think the issue is reading Homer is not going to change your life right. the way reading the New Testament is. And I think, it, you know, so I think there's a hard issue involved in that as well. So, because if you, if you just dispassionately look at it from a scholarly, historical perspective, we know what was in the New Testament. Yeah. That's not really an yeah. issue. And I just don't think it's, yeah, I just don't think it's significant. Let's skip ahead. 1948, it's a great year. Um, Shepherd Boy is, is, and I've been to these caves where this is in, in Israel. 
And it's very, it's like. Not in 1948, 1947. I wasn't there in 48. Could have almost came almost, close. Almost, yeah. In two years. Anyway, um, but every time I've gone to Israel, we go to these places where they have the, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered beginning in 1948. It went for several years after that. The Dead Sea Scrolls are significant. And um, explain that a little bit. Yeah, well, when they, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls among the different uh, Jewish books that they found there was a scroll that contained almost the entire book of Isaiah from the Old Testament. And prior to that discovery, the oldest Hebrew manuscript that we had of the book of Isaiah dated from about 930 AD. So this is 1,500 years or more after it was written. Huge gap there. They find essentially a complete copy of the book of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's dated to about 125 BC. So we've just moved 1,100 years earlier, and they compared the Hebrew of what they had from 930 to the Hebrew that they found from 125 BC, and they found that it was almost word for word identical. So over that 1,100 years, these handwritten, not Xeroxed or whatever copies, were passed down extraordinarily accurately. And so you look at that and you say, they do a pretty good job of copying these things. 1,100 years. 1,100 years. Identical. Unbelievable. So you can question, and here's the thing. Unbelievable. You can question whether Jesus really rose from the dead or not. And Lee Strobel is going to be talking about that in a couple of weeks. But you can't question whether they actually wrote that Jesus rose from the dead. And no. that's, that's what we're, where we're focusing on, you know, at, at this point here. We know what they wrote. We know what they said. Right. Later, we'll talk about whether it's true or not. Some people say that the, uh, and I've heard this so many times, um, that the Gospels contradict each other. In fact, back in the day when I used to be obnoxious, um, I really did this a couple times. Um, I would have I, loved to have known you then. Oh, I was, I was bad. I, I was, uh, no, uh, no joke, this is, this is how bad I was. People would say, you know, don't the Gospels contradict themselves? And I would do this. I'd hand them a Bible and say, show me one. That's not, that's not a good way to win friends. Did they ever show people. you one? They never showed me one. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, but it, it wasn't the right approach. Let me just say that. Right. <laughs> but what, how do we handle that? Well, it's absolutely true that we've got four different Gospels, and it's absolutely true that they record, when, when an event is recorded in more than one of them, that they're not identically recorded in each of the Gospels. But if you're a lawyer or a police officer or a historian, the fact that you have multiple eyewitnesses who have complementary accounts to one another doesn't go against the reliability of that testimony. It actually goes for it. Because if they had identical accounts, word for word, detail for detail, you'd say they must have talked about it with one another. They must have colluded with one another. Yeah, and we know that... Matthew and Luke probably read what Mark wrote, and they used some of it, but they used other sources as well, and Matthew was there. And so, you know, there's, I wouldn't say that they are contradictory. They're complementary. They corroborate one another, and they add details. So, for example, one of the, one of the alleged contradictions is that a couple of the gospel writers say that there was one angel at the tomb after Jesus rose, and another one says that there were two. Tell us, you were looking at that one. I did, I did. Um, Matthew and um, um, Mark say there was one man, one, one angel, when, when they went to see Jesus and the tomb was, was empty. And, and yet Luke and John say there were two. So how do you handle that? Was it um, one or was it two? It, it's perspective. I mean, 
only we only we know only one of them spoke, and so one of the writers came back and said, "Well, there was, there was one." It's it, much like last Saturday night after our Beatles concert here. I was in a conversation with four different people, uh, three different people. It was four of us, three other people. It was just me and one other person talking. Okay, I left that conversation and some, and I, don't know, I saw my wife Charlene or something. I saw I was talking to so and so. And then, but if you had been looking at that conversation, you'd say, oh, I saw you in a conversation with four other people. Well, really, it was only two people talking. But again, it's a matter of perspective. So Charlene talking to you is going to say you had a conversation with one person right. because that's all you told her about because only one of them was talking. I, who was observing from a distance, are going to say you had a conversation with three. There's no contradiction. No. It's just different perspective, yeah, different exactly. details. And that's what you've got in the Gospels in that way. Another, another example of an alleged contradiction is the difference between Matthew and Luke's accounts of Jesus healing the servant of a Roman centurion, this Roman soldier. So in Matthew, Matthew says that the centurion went to Jesus and spoke directly with Jesus. Uh, I'm sorry, that he, uh, that the, yeah, Matthew said that he spoke directly with Jesus. Luke says that he sent representatives to speak to Jesus on his behalf. So which is it? Did he go directly to Jesus, as Matthew says, or did he send representatives, as Luke says? And so people point to that as an apparent contradiction. But if you go back to the first century and you understand the culture, the representative would have been considered incidental to the story. They're ignored most of the time because they're just a spokesman for the person. So it's as if Jesus was, I'm sorry, if the centurion was speaking directly to Jesus. And so there's no contradiction in the minds of the, the first century people who are reading and writing this because that was part of their culture. It'd be very similar to uh, Jay Carney, the uh, White House press secretary. He, you know, every, every day he gives these announcements and, and oftentimes you'll hear him quote Jay Carney. Sometimes I'll just say the Obama administration or the president. Is or, taking the White the House, or the or White whatever House. Whatever it is, right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the same thing. We do the same thing today. So what I would say is we've got to, when we're looking at these alleged contradictions, first of all, give them the same benefit of the doubt that we would give ourselves in our interactions. You were, I saw you talking with three people. You mentioned only one of them. You're not wrong. You're not lying. You're not deceiving. You're just focusing on the one who you talked with. Right. We also need to put ourselves not as 21st century, you know, summit New Jersey Americans. We need to go back to first century Palestine and say, what was the culture like then? Remember, they're writing at that time to those people and understand it in that context. And in that case, so many of these alleged contradictions go away. And in fact, I've seen people talk about hundreds of different alleged contradictions, and I know you have. And as we were talking earlier, neither of us has seen one that can't reasonably be resolved if we give the same benefit of the doubt to the Bible that we would any other historical document or really any document or conversation that we would be having today. Yeah, yeah. Give, so, us, a, give us a good he, summary statement. Yeah, so I would say uh, we can't prove, cannot prove that the Bible is reliable, but I think we can say it's reasonable to believe that it's reliable. That's kind of how I would, I would summarize it that way. It's right. reasonable to believe that it's reliable. What final thoughts do you have that you, uh, that you want to share with us? I'm looking, we're kind of, we're running out of time here. Um, what would you like to kind of leave us with? I, I just want to point everybody to a, a passage in the Bible that, that, that always, always kind of speaks to me. It's in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 
In the NIV, it goes like this. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I kind of like the way the paraphrase Bible, the message, puts it. It's a little more wordy, but it's much more illustrative, I think. Um, I'll show you this one. There's nothing like the written Word of God for showing you the way to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or the other, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the Word, we are put together, shaped up for the task that God has for us. Read the Bible. Listen to it. Follow it. Life will be pretty good. Yeah. It's those times that I get away from what the Bible teaches that I look back on and I had the hardest time and I had misery and pain and heartache and all the other stuff. Yeah. It's those times. So much right now we're focusing on the technical details and all the scholarly stuff, but I love that. The yeah. Pastoral, I just, it's, it's just, it, it's just better. It just there. makes life, it's it just, you know, love God, love your neighbor. Good stuff. Pretty, 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 pretty good stuff. Good stuff. Let me give you some uh, recommended reading here if you want to kind of dig in and some of the books that, that uh, Rich and I read as we were working on this and uh, that have been helpful to us. First one, Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He's the guy that's going to be coming here in a couple of weeks to speak. Definitely worth either picking up a paper copy or you know, getting the Kindle version of it. Uh, excellent book. Answers a lot more questions than we've been able to talk about uh, this morning. Second one I'd recommend is called Reinventing Jesus by several different uh, folks, uh, one of whom was a good friend of mine, Dan Wallace, who was one of my professors uh, in seminary. And he d- they do an excellent job. It kind of takes what Lee Strobel's doing and goes one step further, mm-hmm. but it's still very accessible. You were going to jump in on that. I just got turned on. You, you turned me on to that book this week, actually. I downloaded it, and uh, it's really a good book. I mean, yeah. he, he deals with a lot of good stuff, and it's, and, and it's not... I mean, they're scholars, but it's not written in a scholarly way. Can I say that? Exactly. Yeah. It's not. It's, it's accessible to people who have, don't have a graduate degree right. in these particular things. But, for example, Dan Wallace is probably he would be agreed by people on all uh, spectrums of, of uh, skeptical to you know, faithful in terms of understanding the Bible that he is the, in English, the English-speaking world's foremost expert on issues like textual criticism right. that you were talking about. Um, and then another one, Can We Still Believe the Bible by Craig Blomberg. And he was one of the guys that Lee Strobel quoted. He just recently came out with this book. I downloaded it this week, and I've read uh, large sections of it. Really, really good, very helpful book as well if you want to take things a little bit further. Let me give you uh, one homework idea. idea. Pick one of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Read it this week and ask yourself a couple of questions. First of all, what does it teach me about Jesus? When I read this, what kind of a picture do I get of who Jesus is? And that's always a fascinating uh, sort of thing to do. But then ask yourself this question, and you can't just read the last couple of chapters to get the, the ending of the story. Ask yourself the question, what did Jesus do that got the Jewish religious leaders so upset that they wanted to kill him? And why is it that the Romans, who were not friends of the Jews, were willing to kill Jesus after the Jews requested that, that they do so? So what was it about Jesus that annoyed them so, so much? And uh, with that, we're going to come back next week and... Will the real Jesus please stand up?
next week. It's going to be good. We're already started some stuff. It's going to be great. Good stuff. You want to pray for us? Yeah, I'll pray for us. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to come here and, and just have a discussion about this, this book that you've given us to really guide us through life. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that, that I believe it is reliable, and I don't have to throw away my brain to, to, to believe that, and that you've, taken, you, you've worked through the ages, through people, uh, to take such special care of, of, this, of this book that we call the Bible. We pray, Lord, that not only would we uh, appreciate that, but I pray that we would read it and, uh, and live by it as well. So we thank you for our time. We just pray for a special blessing upon every person that's been here today. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be downstairs. I'm upstairs. And you're upstairs. We have some Ask more questions. questions. We'll be happy to answer them.